How's everybody doing today? Enjoying the rain, maybe? <laughs> I guess it's better than the snow. Um, yeah, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We're working our way slowly through the gospel of Matthew. And um, last week we talked about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is doing weird stuff. He's doing things that people are confused by. They, it, he breaks their molds. He breaks their rules and their customs. And he, and he does things that, that people go like, why are you doing this? This is not how we expect teachers, rabbis, even the Messiah to behave. And he talked about how you have to put new wine in new wineskins. The old wineskins will burst and break, and, and, and how the, the forms and the structures of the Jewish faith up until that point weren't going to work for this new thing that God was doing. And so we're going to see another example of that in the text today. Um, so I wrote, I wrote this message twice. I, 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 towards, I think it was Friday, I threw the complete thing away and started over. And the reason I did that is because, and we, if you've been with us for a while, we've talked about how, how Matthew is, is writing a book. This is, we, we sometimes forget that we have the Bible, but the Bible isn't a book, it's like a library of books. It's 66 different documents, and, and they're all inspired by God and woven together to tell one big story. But Matthew is writing his story about his experience with Jesus. He's probably a pastor of a largely Jewish church, Jewish people that have become followers of Christ. And he's writing his story from a perspective that they would understand. There's a lot of quotes from the Old Testament and other things that Jewish readers would understand. And so we have to continue to remind ourselves of that as we read through this text, and we will today. But the thing that I was struggling with is um, there are four stories about Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are all the authors of these books that were written biographies of Jesus. And three of them, if you read commentaries or, or, or study theology, three of them are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what synoptic means is similar. And if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize there's a lot of the same stories that are told, all in different ways, because these are three different authors that have their own writing style. And, and they, they, they change, they leave different details out and they add details to one and you can kind of piece together the larger story by reading all three of them. And then the Gospel of John is just completely different. He's got a whole different purpose for writing and he tells a whole lot of different stories about Jesus. But my tendency in studying this passage is it's very short. There's very few details and if you read the same story in Mark or the same story in Luke, there's a lot more in there. There's a lot more details. And I kept going back to these other books and saying, well, if we, if we read Luke's account or if we read Mark's account, we get this and this and this. But what I was reminded of late in the week was back when Matthew wrote this to his church, this is all they had. They didn't have Mark's account. They didn't have Luke's account. Later, later on, these would be compiled together early in church history and be known as the Bible we have today. But when it was first written, Matthew wrote this story for a reason, and he gave us the details that he did for a reason. So I'm going to do my best to 
not insert a whole lot of the story from the other gospel accounts um, and see what Matthew has to teach us about Jesus this morning. Before we get into the text, um, I want to talk a little bit about cleanliness. So last week, uh, when the sun was shining, my children went outside. I have a, if, you, if you don't know, I have a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old daughter, and they both love to be outdoors in our backyard. And they were outside for hours doing who knows what, imagining things in their minds and creating worlds and playing and jumping and screaming. And my 6-year-old came in. I was, I was inside, and, and my 6-year-old came into the house like this, and inside her fingers was half of a dead bird. And she said, the other half of the dead bird had been eaten by our potbelly pig. And I said, Nora, come here, put that in the garbage and go wash your hands really well. Because as a six-year-old, she wasn't aware that that was disgusting. Like, she was just, look what I found. I found a dead bird. And, and so I had to teach her a little bit about hygiene that day. That, like, you don't, you don't do that. That's, that's gross. You could get sick. You need to clean your hands really, really well. She was like, oh, okay. I don't know. Because we don't come into the world really understanding that sort of thing. And even adults don't really understand that sort of, sort of thing by default. There's a guy named Joseph Lister in the 1860s. Uh, he was a scientist and a doctor, and he, he started to realize that, you know what, I bet if in hospitals, if the doctors would just like start washing their hands, the patients wouldn't get as many infections. And so he developed this regimen for hand washing that we now call scrubbing in, uh, and this, this, this method for disinfecting surgical instruments. And the medical community like laughed at him. They thought he was crazy for years. But it turns out he was right. And so now if you go into surgery, the doctors are really, really clean. They wash their hands because they understand hygiene. And this isn't a new thing. The, the Israelites were given laws concerning hygiene by God. They were given what are called cleanliness laws in the Hebrew Scriptures. The book of Leviticus and Numbers are filled with ideas about how you should and shouldn't handle things, what you should do when you come in contact with certain things. The priesthood was kind of the medical profession of the day. So if you interact in a certain way with this kind of object, you need to go to the priest and they need to check you out and see if you're contagious. How to deal with molds and funguses and, and illnesses of different kinds. And there were two reasons for these purity laws. One reason was to just keep the people healthy and the other reason was something called ritual purity. Because what God was doing throughout the Old Testament is he was teaching the people that there was something different about him and them. That there was a barrier between them. And this all starts at the very beginning of the Bible. And in the book of Genesis, God sets up this garden called Eden. And this is the place where he is going to meet with people, and they're going to fellowship together. And you read the story of Adam and the Eve, and they walk together in the garden. And then Adam and Eve sin. They, they place their trust in God's enemy and not God, and they, they rebel against him, and, and they get removed from this 
garden, this place where God is. And then throughout Jewish history, they they build the tabernacle, which is the place where the people will meet with God. And what do they put on the tabernacle? Pictures of pomegranates and flowers to evoke this idea of the garden. And then the temple is this place where, again, it's decorated like the garden. This is this place where God is. But you can't just go into the temple. You have to be clean. You have to prepare your outside as well as your inside to meet with God. And it's this picture that God gives the people that there's a gap and you need to prepare yourself to be in my presence. And there's many different kinds of uncleannesses that that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, but one of them is dead bodies. You're not supposed to touch dead bodies. That will make you unclean. And another one is bodily discharges. Both men and women that have uncontrolled discharges from their body are unclean. And so Matthew's telling a story here. And for his Jewish readers, they would immediately go, this story is about two unclean people. And if you are someone who's grown up in the Jewish faith and you understand cleanliness, think about how you reacted in your mind when I said my six-year-old daughter brought in half of a dead bird into our kitchen. Ew. That's how Matthew wants us to react to this story. Ew. Because that's how the Jewish people would have been trained to see these people. So verse 18, as he, Jesus, as he was telling them these things about new wine and new wineskins, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So I said I wasn't going to do a lot of this, but I'm going to do it a little bit. If we look at the other stories in Matthew and Luke, we know that this leader is a religious leader. He's a synagogue leader. And his daughter is 12 years old. Uh, I I told you a second ago, I have a 12-year-old daughter. And so I can't even imagine what he's going through. His daughter just died. We don't know why she died. We don't know if she was sick for a long time or if she, you know, got hit by a horse or... We don't know. Like, we don't know what the circumstances are, but she just... She's she's gone. And he runs to Jesus and he falls down before Jesus and he begs. And what does he ask Jesus to do? Jesus, come to my house and touch a dead person and she will live. And I kind of get the impression here that this dad is a little bit out of his mind. And I don't blame him. I assume that, that, that that's kind of the normal reaction if your daughter just dies. One, he's, he's the synagogue leader. So he's, not, he's probably not real fond of Jesus. Jesus is the up-and-coming rabbi that's gathering all the crowds. and all, The people aren't showing up at synagogue on Sunday because they're going to see Jesus speak. And so there's probably some tension between the religious community. And this kind of grows as time goes on. But he, has, he, he can't think of any other option. And he runs and he, he says, please, Jesus, come and touch my daughter. 
And he has no reason to believe that Jesus can raise people from the dead. We've never seen Jesus do that. I mean, he heals people. He can calm the storms. He's got these powers that nobody really understands. But bringing back somebody from the dead is a different sort of miracle. And he says, touch this dead body that that everybody knows will make you unclean, that will put a gap in between you and God. You won't be able to go worship for a day and a half because you have to clean yourself and do all these ritual things after you touch a dead body. But come do it anyway because I want my daughter to live. And then in verse 19 says, so Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. I love that. Jesus just goes, okay, let's do it. Let's go. Just then in verse 20, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. So like I said earlier, this this discharge of, of blood made her unclean. And she has suffered with this for 12 years. And this is, this is a physical problem. It was likely painful, but it's also a relational problem, a spiritual problem. If you, if you can think about this this way, if, um, if you enjoy church, I, and I enjoy Sunday mornings. I enjoy gathering with God's people and singing and studying the word. I also really enjoy our small group communities that meet. We have one at our house that meets on Thursdays, and there's like eight of us that get together, and we eat dinner, and we hang out, and we, we laugh and pray. I really like that. And if, if, if you're one of those people that really, <clears throat> if you really enjoy that, think about not being able to do that anymore. You can't. You can't be with God's people because you have this disease. It's not your fault that you have this disease, but you have it nonetheless, and it makes you unclean. See, I don't want you to come over to my house for dinner because if you sit on my couch, my couch is unclean. And then if I sit on the couch, then I'm unclean, and then I can't go to church the next day. And I, you know, I'd like to be your friend, but it's really kind of a hassle. So why don't you just stay away from the community? Because you're kind of a liability to everyone. And so for 12 years, this woman hasn't been able to have fellowship with God's people because she is continually barred from entry. But then what do we see about her belief system? In verse 21, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. So this woman is kind of superstitious. She doesn't really, she really doesn't really know Jesus very well. She doesn't even come up and ask Jesus for healing. She sneaks through the crowd, which in the process, she's making all of these people ritually unclean by touching them. And she wants to reach out and touch Jesus, which is going to make him unclean, thinking that the tassel of his robe has some kind of magical power. 
And I think this is kind of crazy. Where this comes from, this is Numbers chapter 15. Again, this is one of those books of the, of the law of God's people. Uh, and this is a rule that God gives the Jewish people way back in their history. And in verse 37 of Numbers 15, it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations, they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. And these will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and not prostitute yourself by following your own heart and your own eyes. This way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So think about, think about the audacity of this woman. She, she is unclean. The fact that she's in this crowd touching people means she is breaking the cleanliness rules that God laid down. And what does she think will heal her? The very thing that's supposed to remind her to keep God's commands. The tassels on the garment were there so that you would look at them and go, I'm one of God's people. I'm going to live my life a certain way. I'm going to submit my life to God's way of doing things. And that's the thing she looks at That's the thing she's going to reach out and break God's laws to touch. She's desperate. And she's she's disobedient, right? Like she's breaking God's laws. But look at verse 22. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. See, this is the the first twist in this story. Like, Jesus should turn around and say, How dare you break God's laws? Don't you know that you're unclean? This is not the way you should do things. But he doesn't do that at all. He says, don't be afraid. Why would she be afraid? Well, because she has this terrible secret. She's sneaking through this crowd. She's breaking the rules by even being there. Don't be afraid, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And not even your faith has healed you, which, which it did, but your faith has saved you. She had been brought into new life at that moment by Jesus. And I love that because, like, what is her faith? It's, it's super messed up, right? Like she's, she's I'm going to touch his tassel and that's magical powers. And she's not. The guys that, that, that meet with me on Mondays at men's cohort, we all get together and we, we're, we're going through a systematic theology. And it's super geeky and fun. 
And, but there's a, there's a section of systematic theology called Christology or Christology. And it's, it's, the, it's all of the technical details about who Jesus is. What, what is Jesus like? And there's books and books written on this. This woman has an incorrect Christology. She does not understand Jesus. There is nothing magical about Jesus' clothing. But from Jesus' perspective, it doesn't matter. She doesn't have it all figured out. She doesn't have her doctrinal statement perfected. She just knows, I need to get to Jesus, and I will be healed. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. He doesn't even bring up the fact that she's unclean or she's broken the law or she shouldn't be here. He has nothing negative to say to her. Verse 23, when Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players in a crowd lamenting loudly. So this seems weird to us. But in the Middle East, they would hire professional mourners and the reason they would do that would be to show openly their grief at the death of a loved one. The Mishnah, which is, which is a commentary on the Hebrew Bible written by rabbis, uh, around then said that every, even the poorest man in Israel should have not less than two pipers and one wailing woman. And so you would hire people whose job it was to come to your house and openly grieve for the death of a loved one. And this is done immediately because dead bodies are unclean and they need to be removed from your house as soon as possible. A, a body would be buried within 24 hours. And so mourning begins immediately. In verse 24, Jesus says, leave because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Why do they laugh at him? Because everyone knows that she's dead. Matthew told us at the beginning of the story that she's dead. The professional mourners know that she's dead. But Jesus says she's asleep. If you think about it, there, there's a lot of similarity between death and sleep. Back last week when um, we had the bird incident, my wife was telling me that she was looking out the window at our potbelly pig laying in the yard. And she just looked at her for several minutes and she thought, I think the pig is dead. She ate that bird. She got sick. We're, and then she's like, what are we going to do about that? Like, we're going to have to dig a hole? And I don't know. Because she couldn't, I mean, she couldn't tell. Like, the pig didn't, wasn't moving. Couldn't tell that the pig was breathing. And she said after about five minutes, she like flicked her ear a little bit. Like, okay, she's fine. But there's similarities between death and sleep. 
We aren't aware of the world around us when we sleep. The, the sayings like, you're dead to the world, or um, you, when you get up late and bleary-eyed, somebody says, look who's returned to the land of the living, right? Like, we, we have these metaphors for sleep. And this isn't foreign to the Bible either. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul says, Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. And he says that not at, at some point in the future when Jesus returns, those that are alive at the time will be transformed. We will be given new bodies and the dead will be raised. But he, instead of using the word dead there, he uses the word sleep. He does this also in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. Let's see if I can find that. It's kind of a small book. You can pass by it pretty easily. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, verse 13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he, he's talking about the same event, this time when Christ will return and gather his people and he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those people who have fallen asleep because the worry was the, the gospel went out from Jerusalem to all of these cities around the Roman Empire that Jesus is Lord. Jesus was murdered by the Romans, but he rose from the dead on the third day and conquered death and ascended to heaven and he's coming back to get his people. And everybody was super excited about this. But then some people in the churches got older and some got sick and some of them even died. And the fear was, what happens to these people? If we're still waiting for Jesus to return, how, what happens to those that have died? And Paul says, I don't want you to worry about those people that have fallen asleep. Because there's something permanent about death. But for the believer, for the one who is been made new by Christ, that permanency is gone. Even those that die in Christ, their death is just like sleep because they will be raised from the dead. And so this is what Jesus is saying, leave because the girl is not dead, but asleep. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. 
Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. So Jesus goes in and he touches the dead girl, something that he wasn't supposed to do, but she comes back to life. It's a miracle. It's the first time that this happens. He does it several more times. And then Matthew says, then news of this spread throughout the whole area. You bet it did, right? That's not a, it's not a normal thing. Everybody starts hearing that Jesus raised this girl from the dead. So what are some things that we can learn from this passage? And I've got three of them if you're a note taker. The first thing that I think we need to focus on is this idea that we are unclean and we can't fix it. Like this this woman that has this disease, like what is it that is in you that's gross? What is that thing in you that is shameful, that's embarrassing? Maybe that's even wicked. Like, I know there's things in my heart like that. What's that thing that you can't possibly let, know pe- let people know about? Like this, this woman, she, she couldn't get close to people because they would find out eventually that she had this problem and they would reject her. She knew that they would reject her. I can't be honest with you about what I'm dealing with because I know how you'll react. And I wonder how many of us feel that inside. I can't get too close to these people. I can't let these people really into my life because they can't find out about this thing that's wrong with me. But look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't recoil from this. Jesus is not concerned about this. We talked a couple of weeks ago that, that we falsely get this impression that, that God is like so put off by sin that it, he can't have anything to do with it. And, and we read that into certain passages, but that gives sin power over God that sin does not have. Jesus does not run away from the gross. He moves toward it. And he fixes it. And whatever it is that that you think you may have going on inside your heart that you cannot let out to the light of day, it's not so bad that Jesus can't deal with it. And by extension, it shouldn't be so bad that Jesus' people can't embrace you in the midst of it. That's why we, we talk often, especially in our smaller communities, about being honest with one another, allowing brothers and sisters to help you through the things that are going through, going through your mind and your heart. And that if we are going to be God's people, Jesus' representatives, we need to be like Jesus, regardless of what comes to us, regardless of what I say that is gross. God's people should be able to go, man, we love you, and let's, 
let's help you deal with that and heal from that and work through that. Because that's who Jesus is. The second thing that, that I think we can learn from this is that Jesus is not in a hurry. I've never dealt with a negative circumstance in my life for 12 years. I can't think of anything that I've struggled with for that long. I've never prayed consistently for the same thing for that long. But I know some of you have. Some of you, day after day, week after week, ask God for the same thing. Maybe it's a loved one that doesn't know Christ that you want to see saved. Maybe it's a physical or a mental or a spiritual ailment. Maybe it's a situation with friends or family. And every day, day after day, it doesn't change. So why did this woman have to bleed and be outcast for 12 years? I don't know. I don't, I don't think we can know. There's other places where it seems like God allows people to suffer so that he can step in at the right time and be glorified by their healing. We don't know if this is the case here. I would caution all of us from trying to figure that out for people. Like, you know why you're suffering? Let me tell you why. It's usually not helpful. But for whatever reason, God has chosen to let this woman go through this thing for this long until this moment when he brings healing. But then what about the other situation? Jesus is on the way to this ruler's house to see this dead girl, and he gets interrupted by this woman. And I don't know anything about raising the dead, but I would assume you'd want to do it as soon as possible. Like the longer you wait, I would guess, there's probably less chance of it working. At least if I'm the father of this 12-year-old girl, I'm in a hurry. And Jesus stops and he deals with this woman. And there's this word in the medical profession called triage. Triage is the ability to diagnose whose problems are the most urgent. That's why when if you go into the ER and you're like, I broke my arm, I think, and they tell you to go sit down, and then somebody gets wheeled in on a gurney with oxygen and blood all over the chest and gets in immediately, you can't be like, I was here first. Like, that's not how it works. You can wait. What is this man thinking? Jesus, we need to go. This woman has dealt with this for 12 years. Can't she deal with it for another hour? We have to get to my house. My daughter has just died. You need to come fix it. But Jesus pauses from that. He's not in a hurry. And he saves this woman. And I think for us, we need to learn to trust him on his timetable. And that's hard sometimes because... Our timetable seems really important. We've got a lot of really good reasons why right now is the right time for you to deal with whatever's going on in my life, God. And sometimes Jesus' timetable looks different. Because if we assume that our timetable is always the right one, it makes it easy for us to believe that Jesus doesn't care. God doesn't love me because he hasn't helped me with this. 
Or look at, look at how God loves other people more than he loves me because he helps them. He fixed that, he cured that, he resolved that situation in their life, but he didn't do it for me. And if we think that way, if we think that whatever our schedule is like is the best way, then it makes us easy for us to lose trust in him for what he's doing on his timetable, which is ultimately the best way, even if we don't realize it. And the last thing that I think we can learn today is that from the perspective of the ruler and the woman, in order for me to be healed, Jesus needs to be defiled. In order for my daughter to live, Jesus needs to make himself unclean and touch her. In order for me to be healed from my issue of blood, I need to touch Jesus and make him unclean. This is whether they're thinking clearly about that or not, this is what they're communicating. My wholeness is dependent on Jesus' defilement. And the crazy thing, the plot twist in this story is that that doesn't happen. Jesus is not defiled by the woman, instead, he heals her. Jesus is not defiled by the girl, he brings her back to life. But I think Matthew was foreshadowing something. Because not too many chapters from now, Matthew is going to tell the story of Jesus on the cross. And not too many weeks from now, we are going to celebrate the holiday of Easter. And what we celebrate on Good Friday and on Easter is this idea that Jesus is murdered by the Roman authorities at the demand of the Jewish leaders as a criminal, but not for anything that he'd done. They couldn't really nail any charges to him and get them to stick, but that it was part of God's plan that Jesus would be crucified for the sins of all the people, for our sins, for the brokenness, for the grossness, for the defilement, for the uncleanness that exists in my heart, and that Jesus would pay for that on the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, He, God, made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, Jesus had no sin. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, so ultimately, this is what happened. Jesus took our grossness, our defilement, our yuck, our uncleanness, and he took it on himself on the cross and he was punished justly for the sin that we've committed. And in return, we got his righteousness. We were given new life. We were giving right standing with God. That's what righteousness means. It means that me and God, we're all right. Me and God are friends. 
Me and God are family. He is my father. I am his son. There's nothing between us anymore. And there was nothing I did, there's nothing that you've done to deserve that, to earn that. It was given to us by Jesus. And I have to wonder if Matthew, knowing this, at this point in his story, is just giving us a little teaser of you thought that Jesus would be made unclean. Because that's how it's supposed to work. But instead, this woman is made clean. And how that mirrors our lives, how we come to the cross, how we come to Christ unclean, broken, sinful. And he takes that from us and gives us his beauty, his holiness, his righteousness. That he won on the cross. And so, as we approach this Easter season, one of the things that I've been trying to remind myself of is who I am in Christ. That there's so, there are so many ways that if, you're, if you've been in the church for any amount of time that we're reminded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, that's, a, that's an easy one. But I am loved. We, have a, we sing a song sometimes called Good, Good Father. God is our good, good Father. And He loves us. He cares about us. And there's nothing standing in the way between us. But the truth is, I forget that. I don't know about you guys, but I don't always live that way. And it's such a beautiful, wonderful thing to be able to sit. I was doing it yesterday. We spent some time here cleaning the facility, and we took turns spending about a half, a t- half an hour in private prayer um, as we were cleaning. And, and I, I spent some time praying. And one of the things I was thinking through was just like, God really loves me. Like, me and him are good. Like, he, he wants what's good for me. He wants what's best for me. He knows all of the rottenness inside of me, and he's paid for it, and he's scrubbing it out every day. And I, I think it's easy to forget that. And so as we, as we sing a little bit more, as we remind each other of who Jesus is through song, the communion table is open. And, and we, we do this every week, and it, it should be a reminder that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he broke the bread and he, he passed it out and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And then he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the new arrangement. All of that, that old stuff, that old wine that I've been talking about, that's passed away. This new arrangement where we are family. My blood brings that about. And he said, eat this and drink this. And every time you do it, remember me. And I, I, 
I remember growing up and thinking like, how could you forget Jesus? He's such a cool guy. But that's not what Jesus means. He means think about me. Think about what I have done. Think about the relationship that you have with me because I paid for your sin on the cross and I gave you my righteousness. And so when God the Father looks at you, he sees a perfect son or daughter. That's what Jesus' body and blood bought for us. And so my encouragement is you are clean in Christ. You are alive in Christ, just like this woman, just like this little girl. Jesus has made you alive. Jesus has made you whole by faith in him. Even if your faith is screwed up like the woman's, like the woman didn't have it all figured out. She just knew she had to get to Jesus. And if that's all you have, Jesus can work with that. It's easy to say, but sometimes it's harder to believe. So I just encourage you to take a few minutes as we sing, come forward, take some, the communion, and just think about that. Think about how you are loved by God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you that Matthew was prompted to write down his story which is your story. God, thank you that you guided his thoughts as he did that, that you inspired this writing, you breathed it out into his pen. And God, I confess that I often lose sight of how much I'm loved by you. Sometimes I feel unworthy of that love, which I am. I feel like my sin is too big, though, which it's not. Sometimes I just, I get busy and I ignore you. And God, I don't know what everybody struggles with in here, but I just pray that we would all begin to see you more clearly. That we would all start to believe maybe a little bit more that you really do love us, that you've really adopted us into your family. We are your sons and daughters in Christ. And God, if there's anyone here that, that maybe isn't following you, that's like, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm, I don't really think I believe this, God, I pray that you would just give them faith, open their eyes, show them that you are Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that everything is under his feet. And that he's inviting us to join him as his people. If we believe. And God, I pray for those of us that don't have it all figured out. God, I know my faith is spotty at times. God, just like the woman didn't quite have it all figured out, but what she had, you accepted. And you brought her salvation. And help us rest in you. 
Remind us of these things as we sing, as we remember your body broken and your blood shed. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.